Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Angle on Producers. As always, I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. I can't believe this is the last episode of 2021. I mean, in some ways, the year flew by, but in others, it felt like it would never end. As we close this chapter, I hope you take the time to reflect and celebrate on some of your professional and personal wins. It's been a big year for me professionally, from shooting Honk for Jesus in Atlanta this summer, which is now premiering at Sundance 2022, so excited, to this transition into my new role at Color Creative. I'm ending the year on a note of gratitude and relishing on the seeds that I planted years ago kind of coming into fruition. I hope that whatever seeds you've been planting are blossoming, and if they're not, maybe it's time to pull out some weeds. Reset for the new year. Speaking of, I'm cooking up some exciting things for the pod next year, so please make sure you subscribe to the show and follow me at Carolina Gropa for all the deets. This week on the show, I got to chat with the incredibly smart and sharp Laura Lewis, the CEO and founder of Rebel Media. She has 20 years of experience in film and television development, production, strategy, sales, and financing. She has produced many incredible features, including Nia Costa's Little Woods, which really left a mark on me. If you haven't seen it, I highly encourage you to check it out. Prior to launching Rebel, she was a film finance and sales agent at CAA, where she packaged and sold films such as On the Basis of Sex, Jackie, Dallas Buyers Club, The Imitation Game, and Begin Again, amongst many others. Her focus has always been on finding ways to push against the no and getting stories across all genres about women and other marginalized voices made and seen. I fully support her mission, and I can't wait to cheer her on from the sidelines in this new chapter of her career. So this week, we dive deep into her transition from the corporate lifestyle that she had at CAA to running her own company, the dangers of self-comparison, and navigating the challenges of the business regardless of how much money you're making. So without further ado, let's hear from Laura. Hello. It's nice to meet you. Hi. Nice to meet you too. Uh, Yes. And I'm just interested on taking us back to the beginning. You know, how did you... Which one? (laughs) Well, the beginning of of your passion for for film and for this industry. Okay. My beginning with entertainment in general was as a kid. I think most of us, you know, you you have to have a passion for it. (laughs) So I just... (laughs) Uh, my family moved around a lot when I was growing up. So stories were the one common denominator. You can take a book wherever you go. TV shows will follow you from one city to the next. Mm. Um, movies that will take you. I remember going to see movies by myself when I was like 16, when we just moved to a new city and, you know, I just wanted an escape. And I wanted to bring that to other people. Like I just, I loved storytelling. I also performed as a kid, you know, to theater you know, not professionally. <laughs> We're talking like church choirs and school shows. And where was uh, this? You said you moved around uh, a lot, but is there a place where you kind of were more centralized? I would guess my my formative years were in um, Morristown, New Jersey, because we lived there three different times. So if you add them up, <laughs> it probably was <laughs> it probably was the most time of my childhood. And then secondly, uh, Dallas, Texas, was where I went to high school, um, and I did a lot of musical theater there and theater in general. So that was, you know, your formative years are really middle school and high school. And those were split, split between those two. Yeah. Um, and, and also my family moved, my dad got transferred to Europe when I was a junior in high school. So I spent my last year in the States in boarding school. So that was also just a time when I really, you know, I had to leave home a year earlier 
than mm. I was expecting to psychologically. And unlike other teens, I was really close with my family. <laughs> and it was, it was really hard. And I just remember my senior year, just enveloping myself in shows like Friends and My So-Called Life and, and movies that I, I remember going to see Speed in the theater five times and The Lion King five <laughs> times. And, you know, I just, I just immersed myself in entertainment in addition to doing, doing musicals uh, on stage. And I just, I just loved entertainment, but also I loved the, the business of entertainment. I was a mm. subscriber at a very early age, you know, back when there were magazines, um, I'm, I'm older <laughs> than I hopefully look, <laughs> but, uh, but I subscribed to premiere. I subscribed to, I think it was movie line. I just subscribed to entertainment weekly. I, I read biographies of Michael Eisner and, you know, any CEO of a company. I really liked the business side of the business too. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, I didn't know there was a job in this. I was in Dallas. I wasn't like in LA or New York where you know what the jobs are. I didn't know what any of those crew members meant. Um, I interned at my Dallas local news station just because I wanted to be near cameras. Yes, I, I went to Duke undergrad um, to have more of the college setting. And even there, I worked on short films and in our Duke news station and did musical theater and, and theater there. Um, so that the passion was always there, but I didn't really know about the job in entertainment till probably my, I went out to LA my, between my junior and senior years and interned for John Davis, uh, productions, uh, they had a first look deal at Fox. And that was my first experience with a production company. And I got the internship via a Duke alum, mm. uh, you know, you're doing this, the typical script coverage and getting coffee but I'd never read a script before, you know, aside from plays. Um, and it was just really, that was really eye-opening in terms of, oh, this is, this is a job. Like, this is what producers do. Um, and then after I graduated Duke, I'll, I'll, uh, I did flirt with acting for one year, but that, that was a very short-lived <laughs> stint. But I, I moved to L.A. Uh, in the fall of 2001, and I honestly didn't know what job I wanted. I didn't know all the different jobs there were, as you just said, how do you learn all the different jobs? I just yeah. cold called every Duke alum because that, that was back when you didn't really email as much. It was still calling. Um, and one of them got me a job at 20th Century Fox Television as an assistant. And that was just my way in. And it just happened to be in a development and production capacity. Who knows where my career would be if I found a marketing job or a distribution job or a promotions job. You never know. Um, it's all about which ladder you sort of get on first but I will say that I, I love project management. I loved or I love organizing. I love problem solving. Uh, and I think all of those are, are criteria you need to be as a producer, need to have as a producer. You need to be yeah. able to multitask and manage, manage many projects at a time. And that's, uh, those have always been my, my skill sets. So I think that that was uh, helpful in figuring out which path I should be on. So when you're in those assistant jobs and I'll give this advice to whoever's listening, like, those assistant jobs are great for learning the industry and learning the business and learning what jobs are out there. And you can sort of pivot during those years to, you know what, I'm seeing what a friend is doing. Maybe I want to be on that path or that path. Um, so really use that time to get to know which, which ladder you want to be on to climb. Yeah. Backing it up for a second. So when you were doing these short films and then when you were at Duke and you were sort of still on that side of it, 
did you have a sense at that time? Like, oh, I guess this is a producer or a stage manager and there's somebody in the art department. Like, was it super clear cut for you then? And then when you came to your internship, like the world opened up even more and you got to see like there are these proverbial producers and executives and all these people. Um, Yes and no. Um, I obviously knew what people did in theater because that was, (laughs) that was, you know, when you do, stage managers and props yeah. and all that. But with short films, especially like everyone's just sort of doing everything. Yeah. So, and I, I don't think I ever really got a sense of what a producer does versus, cause everyone was just sort of hands on all hands on deck doing yeah. things. So really it was when I got more to Hollywood and, and had that first internship that I was like, Oh, this is what a producer does. And um, what was that definition for you at that time? And how has it evolved since that time? Um, I would say it's evolved a lot over the last 20 years versus just that one internship because I really do think there's a difference between producers who are used to making projects with studios, for example, on the film side versus independent producers, independent film producers. There's a difference between television producing than there is between film producing. So there's, to me, a producer is the, the organizer and the seller. And then you have to sort of work within whichever system you're selling it into. Um, and, and that, that job can change a little bit based on, on what it is. I, when I, my first few jobs were very corporate at Fox and Focus. And so I was used to working with studio producers who basically set things up at a studio. And then the studio has infrastructure. The studio has people that budget, people that help with casting, people that help with physical production and, and business affairs. And then when I got into independent film, when I worked, when I started my job at CAA and was in the independent film, I'm like, Oh, the producer here does all of that and yeah. for a fraction of the fee. Correct. <laughs> you know? That's the kind of producer I've been. And I'm like, how do I hop over to oh. what you just described? Because that sounds cush. That sounds amazing. You're just oh, like, yeah. here's the thing. Y'all figure it out. Let me know when I should show up to set. Like, <laughs> it's so Pretty different. Much. I mean, you have to do the job to sell it into that system, which is really hard. Like yeah. packaging, getting the script in place, finding the IP. But then you have help in doing it, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And, that to me was the biggest learning experience was going from all these studio based jobs before business school. And then after business school working at CAA in independent film. And I was like, Oh, this is different. (laughs) You know, this is a different type of producing. And even now that I'm actually producing our first two films were completely independent, but I have another film that's set up with a studio. And I remember going to our kickoff meeting and there was like a head of VA, a head of physical. I was like, Oh my God, I did all of those jobs on my last week. Like, it was just like, I was just so relieved to have that help and that infrastructure. Yeah. And, and listen, your, your job, this goes back to something I said at the very beginning, like this business is passion. So producing is hard. And if yes. you don't have passion to do all of those jobs, you should not be pursuing that project because it's a lot of work. Yeah. Well, to, and to also like, learn those things without having any formal education or training in them like having to be you know there are parts of the process we all hate but like you have to learn contracts you have to learn how to do you know union rules like you have to sort of learn all of this stuff that they don't teach you and if if you do or if you are one of those people that went to film school or any of the producing programs some of them teach you from conversations I've had with people who've gone that path but it's still very 
theoretical, right? And not like practical, how do you deal with this particular situation when it comes up? And it really is like, it seems to be the kind of people now that I've done enough of these that gravitate towards this are people that are just generally curious about life and they thrive in chaos and they would rather be thrown in the fire and figure it out and try to come out with the least amount of burns as possible than to never get in the ring at all. And it's so hard, but there's just something about the way those people, us, me, myself are wired that there's just this, this, this thirst for it, you know, no matter how hard it is. And I think it's important that it's a personality thing and that, and that no one can really teach you that or give you that. It's like either you have that, it comes with your package or you sort of don't. And if you don't, it's going to be, like you said, very hard for you to navigate because it's unbelievably um, difficult. The ups and downs are very yeah. extreme, you know. They are very extreme. <laughs> so Yeah. And you have to be able to weather the storm and write it out. And, and it's hard. I mean, every single time I have those really bad blows. I'm like, I can't deal with this chaos again. I need, I need a desk job again or I need, you know, but as you said, you get through it and then it's almost like you forget about it. It's like, you have to block it out mentally or else you won't do it again. (laughs) That's right. That's right. You know, how do you navigate those ups and downs? Um, with Lexapro Wellbutrin. Uh, (laughs) Hey, whatever it takes. No, I'm very (laughs) honest about my, my, my struggles with anxiety and depression too. And I think that that's important as well to, because as you just said, it, especially since social media and Instagram, like it's yeah. so easy to get into this bubble of everyone else is successful and I'm not, everyone else is selling and I'm not, everyone else is making and I'm not, no matter how successful you are. Like, and so I just want everyone to know that I, I have people come up to me all the time being like, Oh my God, you're doing so well. And I'm like, am I like, you know, it's, it's all relative and it's all, we're, we all have insecurities and we all are, are struggling because it's, it, this business is a struggle, like constantly, whether you're making a lot of money in it or not, like, you know, it's still a struggle. Yeah. And so I just think it's important for people to know that. And sometimes I do have to take social media breaks or I do, because you do get wrapped up in people only share one side of their lives. They sell the, the victories. They don't sell the failures, you know, they, and I, um, so you just, you have to remember that friend once said to me, you never know what someone else is going through, you know, so when someone is really rude to you or is not returning your call or like, you know, you just have to remember, you never know what someone else is going through on the other side. And so I, I try to remember that as well. Um, and yeah, you just have to keep fighting through. And I do try to remember when I'm going through really dark days um, on our last film, I'll just be honest, an actress dropped out on us last minute, like literally almost tanked the movie. And it was really dark. It was hard because you, all you do is think about, oh my God, this crew and the financiers and our director who's worked so hard to get this going. And we made it through the other side. And then you have to remember that the next time something happens is that you did make it through the other side. And it's important to remember those moments and, um, and know you made it because otherwise if you forget, (laughs) then you won't keep going. Um, yeah, so I think I think that's important. Yeah, it's a little bit like it feels like a every every production is some type of you know giving birth, and then you go through the postpartum depression of it, and then you forget about it, and then the baby grows up, and then you're like, oh, maybe we could do another one, you know, <laughs> and then you just forget yeah. about how yeah. unbelievably painful it is, even yeah. if it's not like your own baby project you know I've been fortunate to work a lot and I'm very candid about the career I've built is not 
has not been to this point with the exception of one project films that I've like pushed those boulders uphill. You know, I've been a for hire line producer on on a lot of those projects and it's important for people to understand what that means um, because I don't want to ever take credit away from the producers who have spent years of their lives putting that together. Right. And the differences of that struggle, like, what what you do as a physical producer, line producer, UPM, it's like it's a it's a limited amount of time, generally speaking, and then you get, get to just like go off and do the next thing, and then those producers have to continue to have that like momentum and you know wind in their sails to continue getting yeah. to the end of the finish line, and it's it's just a different muscle that you have to flex, you know. Um, so th- when you were at CAA, you were mostly you were a sales agent, and so you obviously saw a lot of you had a lot of, I'm sure, producers and people coming to you and being pitched things all the time. A gatekeeper for that, right? How was that time for you in terms of dealing with the influx of this, navigating that within yourself, and and then you know the kinds of projects that maybe you were getting, and maybe most of it wasn't as great as you would like. I don't know. What was that time like? We were the gatekeepers to financing, mm-hmm. film finance agents. I think there is because I've done a lot of Sundance panels and women in film panels um, and mentoring. I think there's a disconnect where people just think these finance groups can just automatically get things financed. And you can't. You you just have a Rolodex to financiers and you have a shorthand with knowing who does what, who who wants what, what their business models are. Um, and you just know, the, you know who your buyers are and you know what to go to them with. Um, so that's really what a film finance agent does is structure the finance. We act like executive producers on every project, basically you're, mm. you're structuring the financing. Um, and, and sometimes you, you, you get the film made and sometimes you don't like, you know, and it just totally depends on what's happening in the world at the moment. Um, going back to the projects and the influx of projects. I mean, there was a huge influx of projects because yeah. again, there's only what four or five departments that are at these agencies that are handling all the <laughs> potentially independent films, plus all the films coming out of turnaround of studios. Like we were getting them all. Um, I'm not going to lie, but the client projects always came first um, because yes, we were, we're in a business and we we're always looking for the best projects. And I'd say like 80% were generated though from a client attachment. Now that didn't have to be every single role, but mm-hmm. an actor was attached to something. So it came our way to get a finance or a director or writer, and then we would, and then we would also look for the best projects outside, especially for sales, like independent films that had already been made that we could sell at the festivals. Um, I remember one of the very first films I worked on, Robot and Frank. We, we none of the actors in that were our cats, our our clients, and neither was the director. One of the producers was, but um, but it, it was just a great film that we chased for representation. Um, and same with a film I worked on later, Equity. Um, just chased that down for a presentation because it was a great film. Um, so we looked for great outside projects and great internal projects. And I will say we had, you have to be honest with the producers when they bring you something about it's Mark. I mean, the number of times we get signed, we need to make this for 15 million. I'm like, you'll be lucky to make it for three. You know, so right. you just, you have to be the bearer of marketplace reality. And sometimes the producers and the filmmaker will roll up their sleeves and make it work for what you can get it made for. Dallas Buyers Club is a perfect example of that. Other times it doesn't get made because they can't figure yeah. out how to make it for what the market will bear. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, that was sort of our job is to bridge that business gap. Um, going back to what I said earlier, I found that a lot of the producers I worked with had no sense of market realities because a lot of them had mainly worked with studios and just didn't understand truly 
why something got made, how much money something should get made for and why. Um, So that, that is a skill set I'm so happy to have gotten over the last, over the seven years I spent at CA, because I think that's so invaluable to now producing. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the the reality too, of like the friction that there is the cost of how much something can be made for, there's that that the fine price point of like anything below this, you really start to lose the production value, right? Of what this project is going to be. And then there's the threshold rather is the word I'm looking for. And then there's like, well, yeah, you want to make it for two, but the market, you really should make it for this because we are not gonna be able to sell it. Right. So it's like that creativity as well of how do you make those financial compromises to even get the movie made, to give it the best chance in the market. Or conversations that I've I've only like last year started being privy to because coming up like again no one teaches you this stuff no one tells you this stuff you're like oh we're just doing this project it's three point eight million no one tells you why you just that's just what it is you know it's because of the union tears or whatever and so it's been interesting to get that different um, rounding out the knowledge at least for myself this past year and a half like about this other side of the business and the structures of it very eye opening like I think anyone who wants to make it it's like can you have the flexibility in your vision for what you're trying to do to be malleable with it without losing the vision of what you're trying to do? And yeah. that's, I think, really hard for a lot of people who yeah. maybe only have one way of looking at things. So it's really hard. And I did. I, always, I would see the difference in the filmmakers and the producers that could roll up their sleeves and figure it out and still make a great film. And those just couldn't. And then those films just didn't get made. So yeah. Yeah. Or I- what was funny is I've seen some of them now come back around, but as limited series for television or you know, so um, where there's a will, there's a way usually. So, I mean, Dallas Buyers Club had been in development for 20 years by the time we got it made. Oh, uh, yeah. So, it's it's wild. Yeah. Whenever, whenever anyone says, oh, I've been working on this for so long, I'm like, oh, I have a story for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It's crazy. And I mean, speaking of, you know, this idea of pushing against the no, which you talk a lot about, it's on your website, I believe. And I find that I'm curious how you would express that because pushing past the no and and not taking no for an answer, right, within reason, because otherwise you become that crazy person that no one wants to do business with because you can't really understand time and place. I always want to be mindful of the tactic and the finesse, right? Because I don't want to create this impression that you need to be like a bulldozer of a type of person because that's also not the way to do things. Um, one criteria that I forgot to mention in my list of criteria for a producer earlier is yeah. psychology. Uh, 90% of our job is psychology, um, whether it's how to deal with creatives and also how to deal with buyers and sellers. So, when I say pushing against the no, it's really listening. You can tell the people that there's a, might be a window with, and there might be like, no, this is just a full dead end. It's also just really listening to the marketplace and who's looking for what. The number of times I would like take a piece of information and park it here. And then like, I remember before, uh, this is a movie, Little Woods. Um, yes. I, I love that movie you know, that I helped put together. Uh, I remember to, when I got that project, I remember to finance your having told me like six months prior that they were looking for a first time filmmaker, this amount of money. And I just remembered that 
and then went to her and it was like one-stop shop, got it done. You know, like you have to remember information and you have to figure and keep that. So it might take a little bit longer to get something made. So when I say push against the no, it's not, not taking no for an answer. It's Mm. figuring out the path to get it made because there is a path. It's just, you have to like, you can't just go to the same person over and over and hammer them, but there's so many different avenues and maybe it is pivoting to television. Maybe there is a, it's just for the projects you're truly passionate about. It's just figuring out what's the right path for it. Um, and yeah, like I just said, I just found the number of projects that came around that I figured out a way to get made. Even though somebody told me there was no way to get it made. The Butler Dallas buyers club. <laughs> I was like there for the, for the ones, you know, in your gut that there is a marketplace for it. You can get it made. Um, yeah. I wish I had more specifics to say than that. But, um, but yeah, it's definitely not literally hammering someone every day with an email or <laughs> not listening when they're saying no to you. But some people will say like, you could tell they're passing on it because it's, they need one more element or they need more financials in place or, or the budget needs to be a little bit lower. You can sometimes tell that you just have to listen to them, tell, see where there's the openings. The hardest thing in this business is for, is to say yes, because that's what you have to realize. It's so much easier for everybody to say no. Yeah. Especially pe- people have their jobs on the line. So if they bet on the wrong thing, they're screwed. And so you have to give them more reasons not to say no, whether it's adding another cast element, bringing the budget down, um, you know, finding your internal champion to champion it with the bosses if the boss isn't quite getting it. So that's what I mean by pushing against the no is yeah. what's, what's your strategy? Like what's your, rather than just, as you said, bulldozing, because <laughs> that's not yeah. a strategy. And that will yeah. just, and that will, I remember one financier we worked with when I was at CA saying that to me is that they, they appreciated that I didn't to push them on the wrong projects and that I was also honest with them when I send them projects. I didn't just lie to them about like, this is the best project. Cause then it's like the boy who cried wolf. You can't say that about every project. So right. sometimes, sometimes you had to cover a financier for a client and you knew that it wasn't going to be for them because you know what their taste is. And you say that you say, listen, right. I'm not, you can make your own decision here, but <laughs> these are, this is why it may or may not be for you. So I don't want to waste your time. Check out 10, 20 pages. But you also knew the ones it would be for based on what they had previously told you of what they're looking for, what their taste is. So um, I've always taken that to heart, These the, that one financier very early in my days at CA that said they really appreciated the honesty and the transparency. So they were excited to answer the phone when I called versus like, oh, they're just going to try to sell me on something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what you want, right? You want that whoever you're calling on the other line to just be like, oh, I can't wait to hear what they have to say versus like, Oh, I got to deal with this person. No matter what, what field you're in, what part of the business you're in. I think like I've definitely been in rooms where I'm just like watching this go down, you know, where you're having a pleasant conversation with someone and they're like, Oh, roll their eyes. Got to deal with this person. Um, and that's sad. Like I, you know, hope that's, that's an unfortunate way to go about it. But I think the, the tactfulness to it all is learned behavior. And that's the thing, like starting out, like I'm sure the amount of mistakes I made, you know, and, and, and pushing too hard, even for little things like, oh, I want to meet this person. I want to go to coffee with them. Like maybe being a little too aggressive because I was told that, especially as a woman, that like you have to be a certain way. You have to project a certain something. And especially when you're like 22, you're like, what What are you projecting? Like, you know nothing about the world. Like you have nothing to project, you know? Um, 
globally. And it's so funny because like when you get older and you meet people who are in that stage of their life, it's so obvious. But when you're in that stage of your life, you feel like you're just like no one has any idea. Like you're just God's gift to, you know, to whatever. It's really fascinating. And as I said earlier, like you, you never know what's going on in someone's life. So if they're not responding to your email, if they don't have time for coffee with you, like, you know, just do a quick phone call. Like don't, coffee takes time going, leaving a house, the house takes time. Luckily we yeah. don't have, I mean, that's the blessing of people finally getting used to Zooms now is it can be quicker. You don't have to worry about someone having to drive, but don't be offended if, you know, somebody doesn't get back to you. They just might really be too busy and it's not. Yeah. I mean, I know when I was, especially when you're looking for a job and you're young and it's like so much pressure on finding that job and why isn't this person getting back to me? Um, but, uh, yeah, you just never know what's going on in someone else's life and no one's meaning to be rude, but people have limited time. And, and the older you get, as you said, the more you have to fit into that time. It's family, it's friends. It's Well, priorities shift. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or a much more high pressure job. Like, so, you know, so. Yeah. And so how has the transition then for you been? You left CAA, you were there for about almost eight years from what I read. Um, and then you decided, all right, I'm going to go out on my own. I'm going to form my own company, which yeah. is Rebel. And and you wanted it to focus on, on fem- putting women at the center of narratives, which I think is obviously brilliant and everything I believe in. And I think it's amazing. But now that it's been a couple years, right? 2016 is when you sort of ventured on this path. Yeah, I left CAA in the middle of 2017. Okay. I actually launched Rebel uh, actually exactly three years ago. It was August 2018. It took me Well, congrats. <laughs> three years. It took me a year to raise financing to get the company going. So it was literally a roadshow year of me on American Airlines and meeting with <laughs> people in New York and LA. And I remember flying to DC for a financier meeting, um, just really trying to, to raise the money to get the company going. Um, for, you know, hindsight again, teaches you things. I really wanted to, when I first started, I really wanted to keep the company independent so that we weren't beholden to one model in a world where there's so many different models, both across film and TV. I wanted to be able to sell into any of them. So that's why I raised independent financing to get the company going. Um, I do think post COVID and that's a whole other conversation about what's changed over the last year and a half, um, having those, that sort of strategic relationship might be more important now, um, especially as we move to more of a streaming model. But mm. that was why I raised independently to keep it going. It's just like we flew it across buyers and mediums. And um, so, so yeah, so the company's been around about three years. So funny. I really thought that I worked nonstop when I was at CA. No, no, no. It's like night and day how much more I work now <laughs> running my own company. Yeah, well, because you're doing even more more jobs. You have to well, now yeah, oversee. Yeah. Going back to independent film producing versus studio producing, I'm now the head of operations, the head of HR, the head of production, <laughs> CEO, head of investor relations. Yeah, yeah. Head of IT. And you saw how great I am at IT. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, again, not having all those bells and whistles that come with the corporate lifestyle, uh, that was a real adjustment. Um as was, it's so funny. I'm like that weird personality that sometimes I thrive in chaos, but sometimes I really don't. Like, and yeah. and when you're starting, when you're doing something you've never done before, which is building a company, the number of mistakes I've made over the last three years, it's just, <clears throat> and you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay yeah. with 
okay with failing and that's just but you're doing it you know it's yeah it's like failing upwards right you're doing it you're taking a leap i don't know if i'm failing (laughs) (laughs) well in any direction at least you're not stationary right i just hope i'm not feeling going backwards but yeah no i i can't i can't imagine that to be true at all but that's just me from my limited knowledge of you (laughs) and what you've accomplished so far and what you still have yet to do you're so young you're still like just getting started on this new chapter there's so much to be done but that's the low elizabeth taylor lighting So yeah, silly, but, so anyway. um, but no, I, I'm curious because like I, you mentioned on another uh, episode of a different podcast that, you know, you had to you, you weren't able to find the financing to even build your own company within entertainment, which I find insane, especially considering if anyone could have done it, it would have been you because you had all the relationships with the financiers, with the investors. And that was not a model that was going to work. And you had to seek funding and investors outside the business. And yeah. so when you say that now looking back, you would have done things differently, is that what you're referencing? And and is the money that you went to get, like, was it an, an overhead to run the company and then a fund as well that was going to be finite to, to put towards these projects? I, yeah, my goal was both of those things. Um, mm-hmm. the, the hole and the problem I was trying to fill in starting Rebel was being a capital source for material run by women because we have so few sources of financing run with our lens on material. Um, And when I was at CA, I could count on one hand the number of places I could go that were run by women, but had the green light power. Um, And that was so frustrating whenever you were trying to get anything made that appealed to the female audience that was romantic or hopeful or funny. And you know, like, it's just women have different tastes than, I mean, I could get so many action movies made. But I or yeah. a broody male drama, like because you know I guess men like to see each other brood. But like I, it was so much harder to get a female filmmaker, female-driven material made. And I was like, in a marketplace where there's not a lot of holes, here's a hole. Like women aren't a niche market. We're over fifty percent of the population, and we drive purchase power of the world. Like, yeah. why are more people not solely addressing this market? And so that was my goal. And as you just said, my biggest frustration and and hardest learning experience in that first year from uh, mid 2017 to 2018, I was really depressed because the number of people that I had worked with that I had made money for, who had, who had great relationships with so many of them told me they were going to, when I told them I was doing this, that they were going to help finance the company, that they were going to I mean, large numbers of money. And then they just either ghosted or changed the deal terms at the last second. And I was so disappointed because then I would see male A, B, and C, and D go to the same people and they would rally around that man and raise them large amounts of money. Um, and I was like, wait, wait a second. I, I'm one of the few people that has both a creative background and understands the business. So I'm not going to burn the money. I'm not going to waste it the way I'm sorry. I've seen so many men do, or they just try to start a studio from day one. <laughs> and when you don't have the volume to justify it yet, <laughs> and, like, well, look, I can just go to Google search for all the ones that have crashed and burned. But I was so disappointed that, and so yeah. many people said, we're going to help you build this. We're going to help you do it. And then it led to nothing. So I, did it? I found one woman, and she's now my guardian angel because unfortunately she passed away a couple months ago. Mm. But she, 
she was not a woman in the industry. I met her via one film that um, my dear friend Alicia Reiner you know, introduced me to her. And she just took me under her wing and said, I believe in you. And she helped raise this overhead funding to get the company going. And that was enough to get us started. But I still haven't able to accomplish that dream I've had of putting women in charge of capital so that we can back other people and other projects. Like I love being a hands-on producer, but I also want to empower other women or men that are supporting female filmmakers or projects to, you know, we're equal opportunity. I just want balance and gender parity, but uh, I want to be able to support those people to get their films and TV shows made too. And just, be a godmother to them. So it was always a goal to do both, like to be able to fully produce the stories that we see they're available to tell, but also champion other people and help them. And that side of the business, I still haven't been able to get going yet. So that's my spiel. I find that to be just a bananas, you know, an abhorrent, like, especially in the climate and how much I would say has changed since even 2016, 2017, when you went on this course, like, yes, pandemic aside, but the uprising of women led companies and actresses with power running companies, and not just for their own, you know, professional gain, but to actually uplift other people, the interest in female driven content. And then what I also find bizarre is like, now more than ever with all the streamers. There's so many more avenues that it's like, why is it still so hard? Yeah. I don't understand it. Yeah. You know, it's like, why are we still here? Yeah. It's a rhetorical question, but it's, um, <laughs> it is. A rhetorical. And then, like, I said, like, I think if I'd known how hard it was going to be, I don't know if I would have done it because yeah. it was really depressing to see the same people. And by the way, the number of those men that offered me jobs instead of helping finance the company. I'm like, okay, so I'm allowed to come work for you, but it's never with you as your partner. And then B, you won't take the bet on me. I mean, Hey, I'm open to a first look deal or anything where we can feed you projects, but why it's, yeah, we're always supposed to embolden the man. Versus- yeah. Where do you think that fear comes from? Do you think that know, men think women are just going to like, well, I just truly think it's blinders. I think it's, tr- I, I don't think it's actually fear. I think it's just inculcated into brains I mean, that's why I believe in the power of what we do, because we have the opportunity to incept into these synapses and change minds and open hearts and create empathy. Yeah. I, tr- I truly believe that they just don't see it. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and how could they, right? You also mentioned on a different thing I read how the images that we create and how, how much Hollywood is responsible for our own social, like how we take social cues, our own identities. I mean, I, I, very much I'm I'm guilty of that. Like I'm from Brazil. And when I came to America, like I still have a hard time, even for example, my standards of beauty are like, if you're not blonde and white, like you're not, you know, and I'm a very progressive here. I am doing all these things, but I, there's still like the eight, eight year old in me who was just blasted all of these images for so long that it's yeah. so, so much to undo that. Um, but, but you're right. Like there is a social responsibility. I believe we have as people who do get to influence the kinds of narratives that are out there and the kinds of characters we see to change that. And I, I was, I was laughing the other day. Cause I was like, you know, when you think about growing up, at least it's changed now, but like anytime you saw like a powerful woman on screen and she was like a businesswoman. you know, it was always like, 
she's alone. She her life her love life struggles, and she's getting home, and she's closes the door, and she takes off her earrings and throws it on the thing next to the keys, and kicks off her heels, and then opens the fridge and pours herself a glass of Chardonnay, and overlooks you know the beautiful skyline of Chicago, and but she's alone, and she just like just melts into the couch and that's all she has. It's like her success and no one to share it with. And that, like that image of that, like she's successful, she's powerful, but that's it. That's all she has. It has to come at the expense of everything else in her life. She'll justify my nightly glass or two of wine by Jennifer Lopez in the wedding planner. Cause she came home and did exactly that. Yes. On the TV with a TV dinner, kicks off her heels in her beautiful Jennifer Lopez outfit, and is watching alone with her glass of wine. And also, Carrie Washington, Carrie Washington in Scandal in the pilot. She's alone at her computer drinking wine. I'm like, I I still justify my my wine habit by these people that taught me that that's what you're supposed to do at the end of the day. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the wine habit is beautiful, but I, I, I just think that image is so ingrained. Look at Sigourney Weaver and Working Girl. Like, she's the bitch, you know, like, she, yeah. She's the successful one and she's painted just awfully. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, we, it's such a big conversation and I, I feel grateful all things considered that we do get to live in a time where it's never been better to be a woman. It's never been better to be a person of color. We are working towards, you know, to to gender, gender parity and we're working towards balancing the scales a bit are we there yet nowhere near it of course we're we're but like there's micro progress is made and i i like to believe that with the new generation coming up and some of the more archaic perspectives and approaches to story kind of dying off that there will be a, a massive wave and we're part of all those little ripples that need to be consistently being made yeah. so that the wave can like build t- towards something um, truly exceptional and to make it, you know, the 50, like women having 50% of the purchasing power, make it like a real representation in the world and not just an entertainment. And it's yeah. like, that is so much of my MO as well. It's why, you know, a tiny way, I hope by these conversations, people listening who, you know, want to get in the business, we need them, we need you. And it's not to dissuade anyone, it's just to inform them because there is so much mysticism about Hollywood and what we do and how things are done and everyone sees highlight reels and projects and just gets thinks it's always glamorous and it's money flowing everywhere and hanging out with celebrities on red carpets and that's like one percent of the time maybe if you're lucky you know and even then not for producers necessarily so so anyway it's it's a lot going some you just said and I think this is really important because I remember telling one of my employees this one of my junior executives because I think I busted her bubble like Producers don't get paid until something goes into production. Yeah. So, and I think that's really important for people that want to get into producing to know because you can work for years until you get something in production. And that makes this life really difficult because um, we could sell five things. You don't get paid till it gets made. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the reason the producer lifestyle is really difficult. Um, and especially this past year during COVID when there was a full year of like no, almost a full year of no production and writers can still get paid, you know, but uh, I think people just have to realize that before going into wanting to be a producer, just be really cognizant of that fact. Um, yeah. Shocked yeah. How people don't know that they think that when you sell something, you get paid. I'm like, no, 
No, no. And I think there's a, at least on the independent side of things, I mean, obviously studios are totally different. Some producers are lucky enough to have overheads or first looks and whatever. They, they, they're fine. They're doing okay. But, you know, there is a big movement with forming a producer's union to sort of figure out how to restructure it so that the quality of life we can all have, it makes it worthwhile because oftentimes too, what happens is, you know, the independent producers become almost like scouts for the studios where they're the ones they're right. the ones out there, right, taking the gamble and, and spending years of their life developing it. Yeah, of writing a writer-director who then wins Sundance and then gets taken to do a Marvel movie and their career takes off. But that producer's like, cool, bro, like, you know, maybe I'll get a plus one to your premiere. And then they have to start for all over again. And it's like, That's it's right. just bananas. And I think like the way that That's, the producer role. happening. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I think for too long, and I saw this when I worked at a studio too, the producers weren't respected. I think the producer role was not respected. And I think so, and listen, some producers do it name only and I think right. it denigrates the title, but the real producers, like that work needs to be valued and it's it's really important. Who else is solving the problems and pulling all these pieces together and, and managing <laughs> like well, and it's it's upsetting. Like, I think it's um, I had this conversation with a producer just this past summer. We were in Atlanta making a movie. It's like, you know, the only thing we have left is the producer title. And now it's also a thing where they're just giving it away like hotcakes to anybody. And it's so dismissive of the work. Everybody wants to get the producer's title on the very rare chance that they can win an Oscar, but nobody wants to really do the producer work. Nobody really wants to lift up their, roll up their sleeves and do the actual hard work of of what it takes in all steps of the process. And it is upsetting and it is disheartening. um, And I, I hope that we can find a solution for it because my fear is that a lot of very talented people, women especially, just burn out and go like, this can't be my life forever. Like the passion at one some point can't sustain the reality, you know? And I think that that's why, I mean, so many wonderful women I know are now executives, like at, which is great because we need them there, but there's not as many, I think there's some great ones, but there's not as many female independent, you know, producers because it's just, especially for women, it's a really hard lifestyle. Um, especially when you have kids because, and I know there's just more stability being an executive at a studio or at a network or, um, but, but yeah, there's, there's very few of us purely independent female producers. Yeah, it is true. But to end on a, on a high note, <laughs> hey, for them cushy studio salaries. That's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah. 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 Look, and then, yeah, exactly. We need them. In there's, there too. there's no shame in that. There's no shame in that, but I, yeah. I hope that, I didn't mean to make that look bad, but like, but I do no. know a lot of women that have said I need to go into the executive ranks now for personal reasons. And, um, yeah. So, but, but that I goes mean, back to the other conversation. Why are so many men given overhead versus women? So. Right. I think, cause yeah, it's like you, but then that that's the thing, right? Most women have to make that choice of like, well, if you then decide to stick to the, to the, uh, this path, this track and, and gamble on the probability that maybe you'll be one of the few that get to the place where you do have an overhead. The work involved to get there means that this has to be your whole life, unless you have a great partner who is a breadwinner and you don't have to worry about the months, years between, like you said, getting paid. 
I mean, for better or for worse, a lot of the really kick-ass women I know are the breadwinners in their families. So they, there's only, they have to make a certain amount um, and that's what makes them awesome, <laughs> but also makes yeah. it hard. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I know women in film is doing a study of who's getting the money, like who is getting the overhead deals um, because that allows more women to stay outside and find the champion, the stories they want to tell versus being beholden to the System. Yeah, I mean, it seems it seems to be mostly writers, though. Like, if you're a writer, director, especially in television, obviously, like you you do get a over uh, overhead or a first look. And then if you have, like, I think a lot of like Betsy Beers, who is Shonda Land's, you know, Shonda Rhimes's right hand, um, and she's a non writing producer who came up with her and helped her build her empire. But she's like one of maybe three that exist out there who gets to. I think do whatever she wants, but within that umbrella as well, I'm sure she yeah. too has her struggles of like, she wishes she could venture out and do something different. But on the female side, I think the talent have gotten really great. Whether it's yeah. Sean, Ava, um, Julie Platt, you know, a lot of the writer directors, yeah. especially in television and film, it seems to be more actors. Um, it's funny. And, and you see all the men that get, like producers that aren't tied to talent that aren't tied to either an actor, like there's way more men that have overhead deals. I think they're women, but I'm just saying that based on my gut and, and reading. <laughs> I, I, th- I would venture to say you're right. And the question is why tied to talent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's why, because I find that women are so much more naturally adept to being a producer than men are generally yeah. speaking. So I find that interesting, but it's because like you said, men are still the ones that are, yeah. Dish, they're still the dealer, you know. Yeah, if they are a studio, they'll give their friend a deal, and you know. So anyway, we'll go into that. To end on a on a high note, you know, what is the thing about the business that you do love about producing that you do love that keeps you coming back to it? Um, because listen, I've had to have these conversations with myself a lot recently, um, especially when you hit that three year mark. It's like okay, you have, it's time to evaluate. So I just want to be honest with people about that too. That we all have to look at where we are. And, um, and so I'm always outweighing the pros and cons of running my own thing versus taking the job. And I do love the independence. I love, uh, not having to only make the projects that I'm passionate about. When you work at a, at a buyer, you have to find things for all audiences. And I don't want to do that. I want to work on the, on the female driven content that I want the world to see, you know, and, um, I think there is an opportunity to do that at certain buyers, but, um, but yeah, I, I love only working on things I'm passionate about. And that was the hardest thing about my job at CA. Like some of the things I was truly passionate about and some just felt like work. And it's really when you're, when you're on this side of the fence, you do have that opportunity to only work on the things that you want to work on. I still love when I find that piece of material that really excites me and I just really want it and it sucks when you lose it I just lost one to a dear friend so it's okay mm. but uh, uh not saying I didn't cry but it's that passion and finding that that story that you just want to tell that badly is still what keeps you going I'm not saying that I have about that about everything I'm working on because some things are like let's see how this goes like maybe it'll yeah. get there you have to sort of it's R and D producing is our research and development. You've got to figure out sometimes if something will get there and sometimes it won't get anywhere. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's why, um, I also love when you're producing, you get to work with a lot of different teams. Like I've, I work with friends, other producers on almost every project. It's really great to be able to scale, but without having to have that overhead, (laughs) you know? So, 
I, you know, I'm working with really good friends on a lot of different pieces of material. And that's also great too, is to, to get to work with people I've always loved on different projects. So that's what I like about this side of the fence, but it's hard. I'm not going to lie. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear that. I'm, I've been on that side of the fence my whole life. All sides of all fences. So I'm happy to, oh. <laughs> I worked at too many different places. It's great because you have a, like the full breadth of experience and understanding of the business too. And I think like whatever you decide to do next, however the path unfolds for you, like you have this well-rounded, um, yeah, like ex- set of experiences around the business that m- many people don't really ever get. And I think that can only propel you forward. I don't see how that could hope so. m- mean you're failing backwards to your silly <laughs> comment earlier. Um but okay, we have reached the end. I want to be mindful of your time. So this is my quick yep. lightning round. Whatever comes to mind first is what you can answer. What's a song that teleports you to a happy place? <laughs> oh, God. It's going to be a Disney or musical theater song. Okay, you're going to laugh. My sister will like this one. Um, but the first song that popped in my head isn't really a song. It's a piece of score. It's Jerry, Jerry Goldsmith's score. Um, for the Soren ride at Disneyland and <laughs> Disney World. Wow, that's amazing and very specific. I know. I love that score, and every time I listen to it, it just takes me to that ride, which I just love. So, um, okay. So on that note, though, this is a bonus yeah. question, not part of the lightning round. I'm doing terribly <laughs> with the lightning round. It's fine. But if you could revive any musical theater and produce it, any piece, what would it be? The one that I've always wanted to go back and figure out a modern retelling of, and if whoever out there that controls the rights can help me, please let me know. Um, but Hello Dolly, because it's it's a match it's a matchmaking story, you know. And I've just always felt that that show is ripe for a modern retelling, you know, not set mm-hmm. in that, that era. But um, that's the one that when I saw the Bette Midler version recently on Broadway, I was like, huh, this could be really great new because there's a really great new version of this in here not just yeah making, but like i mean we already had that great movie with barbara streisand we don't need to remake that movie but like what's the modern version of this matchmaking story what's the last piece of art that moved you i bought these two pieces for my bedroom just recently so i'm just going to name say that because i i'm very bad with art but i saw these pieces it's an artist named trixie pitts and i just loved them so anyway i bought them for my bedroom because is it they're, like two, they're, they're paintings and they're two and they feel like diving into water. Like I love anything that's water and makes you feel enveloped in water. My friends laugh at me because I take a bath every day. Like I love a bath. Um, but anything that makes me throw water. And also I just went to the immersive Van Gogh exhibit. Um, yes. Everybody's it. been talking about that. I went here in New York and I love Van Gogh. I've always felt like his art is like icing. Like I, it's like, I love icing on cake. So it's really wonderful to sit in his icing. <laughs> so. Amazing. Okay. Fill in the blank. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress. Planning my next Disney trip. (laughs) What is one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. Oh, and it's so funny how you say the word investment and it immediately goes to financial. Um, This is part financial, part otherwise, but my education. And I'll just have to thank my parents for that. I'm very privileged, so I had help on that. Um, But I thought education is so important in opening up your mind and experiences. It's why I went back to business school because I felt like I needed to have that reset and that reconnect. Um, 
and anything you can still do to further your learning and reading as much as you can. Like that's all education. So I would say that like, and listen, I don't take as much time as I should to read nonfiction and to read the New Yorker, read, but anything we can do to educate ourselves on others and other people's lives and other people's conditions and our history, our real history, especially right now when we need to be learning and educating ourselves on our real history. Um, I think that yeah. that's, that's education just in general. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is the final question. I loved the actor studio. I still do like coming up. It was like, I just love any breaking down of any process. I'm obsessed with like how things are made. It's why I love producing. It's like what I love yeah. to watch. So borrowing from inside the actor studio, uh, there is a question which was inspired by the famed French journalist, Bernard Pivot. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You can rest now. <laughs> Finally, you can sleep. Yeah. <laughs> you can stop working so freaking hard. I know. That's like, I just, yeah. I mean, we work 24 hours a day and it's really hard even when you take a vacation to turn off. Like, it's just, yeah, yeah I just, just want to rest. <laughs> yeah. Like, rest. Well, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much for taking the time. My life's mission and my life's work is to, to, to create that table and then to help other people get a seat at that table. I love that mission. So, I mean, yeah. that's really my goal too, is to get more seats at the table. You know, I, I'm yeah. doing it via story and you're doing it via this and also yeah. via what you're producing wise too. So yes. Thank you. Yes. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. You can find the show at angleonproducers.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next week. Beijos. <laughs>